0: Hello, and welcome to presenting a podcast where we chat about various topics related to role-playing games, typically Paizo products such as Pathfinder and Starfinder, but also others. I'm John Godek, and with me today is Michael Raccoon. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, greetings and salutations all and sundry. So Michael is the creative director of the Luminant Age campaign setting for Pathfinder Second Edition, as well as a longtime freelance author and game designer for Paizo with over 30 credits to his name. He's a Russian-speaking Ukrainian-American currently mm-hmm. residing in China. Michael has a PhD in diplomatic history and is also a published historian. You can reach Michael on Twitter at Neotiamit, as well as learn more about Luminant Age um, at Luminant A on Twitter. So, uh, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your journey to becoming an RPG author with nearly 200,000 words written for Paizo?
1: So briefly, I am what happens when you expose impressionable young children to libraries. (laughs) All right, to explain. So I was born in Kiev, Ukraine, back when it was still part of the Soviet Union. But my family moved to America when I was about like yay high. This was when the so, this is when the wall fell and like all all of those exciting oh, right, things right, right happened.
0: Now. Yeah.
1: Now the thing about my family is that we're kind of like we were oh, we're old school Soviet like intelligentsia types which basically Mm -hmm. means we were all completely obsessed with books. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: My grandmother was a professor of Russian literature at Lviv State University. Uh, Growing up, we had, like, entire walls of bookshelves. Dinner conversation was basically, there's mom eating supper with a book in front of her nose. There's dad eating supper with a book in front of his nose. And here's little Misha... Eating supper, booking for the minos. That's kind of how it goes. So, as a, so growing up, I was always like, I was always reading, always interested in books, all of that. Then along comes one fine day in two thousand five, which is good god, that was that's longer ago than I like to think about. Almost eighteen years ago. <laughs> yeah. So- I, so teenage Michael was wandering around Barnes and nobles, bored out of his ever-loving skull, and he comes across a book called I, Strad* by P.N. Elrod. Now, I kind of had like a dim view of like tie-in literature, still mm-hmm. do somewhat, but you know, I was 17, I was goth as hell. And, okay, hmm, it's, it, it's a book written, at, like, from the perspective of the bad guy who's also a vampire.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, you have, you have my attention book. Let's see if you can hold up. Turns out it did. So, read it, got interested in it. Like, we had good mix of epic gothic melodrama, pitch black humor. So, got interested, started kind of getting like, okay, let's follow up on this. What's this whole Ravenloft business? Looks interesting. Mm -hmm. Being shy and standoffish, I know it's hard to imagine now (laughs) at that age, I went online. I was like, okay, let's look around forums, websites, what can I find? And I made my way to the Fraternity of Shadows uh, web forum which was and is kind of the uh, like, it, that is the place for Ravenloft fan stuff, kind of mm-hmm. online. I joined a couple of play-by-post games, which, in the manner of play-by-post games then and now, promptly crashed and burned. <laughs> yeah. At which point I was like, okay, well, all right, Michael, if you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself. So I started running my own games and thus acceded to that epic role of the forever GM, mm. which I've not given up in the 15 years since. Uh, got involved in various fan projects, got involved in a scary amount of homebrewing. Um, <clears throat> if you wander around the uh, fraternity's kind of quote the rave the fan books, My name pops up there on a fair number of issues. And just kind of kept running games, kept doing homebrew stuff, kept doing fan stuff. Until around 2017 when networking magic happened. (laughs) And a person of my acquaintance got hired by Paizo. And they're like, okay, we need people. Michael, you have the gift of gab. Will you write for us? I'm like, sure. And the rest is, as they say, history. I started writing for Paizo in the last days of first edition. I did a few, like basically everyone back then. I started off on the companion series, so they can like give me right. here is 1,500 words. Please write something coherent. And I
2: like. Coherency.
1: I can achieve this. And did that. Uh, did a few back matter. Well, did one back matter and a couple of beast theory stuff. Uh, initially, I was working with Eleanor Farren, Louis Loza, and Ron Landine, And that meant that when 2nd Edition rolled around, guess who was on the ground floor? Mm. This guy. Nice. And so I kind of... I was one of the first people involved, one of the first freelancers involved, and things just kind of spiraled out from there. Um, overall, I have—let me think—I have over thirty piezo credits at this point, with a couple more in the pipeline. I've written, oh good lord. Two modules. I am the cover author on the Dark Archive book. Mm -hmm. I've done some back matters. I've done Pathfinder 1, Pathfinder 2, Starfinder. Um, Pretty much I have written all things except for Adventure Pass at this point. I am inescapable.
0: (laughs) So how did you become so prolific, writing dozens for you know, you have dozens of credits for both Pathfinder and Starfinder now. You know, that's a lot. And you're talking five years, right, from start. Yeah, yeah probably. That. You'll take. Um, at, the, at my peak, it's
1: actually, uh, really, the peak of it was, like, for about three years when I was writing 50,000 words a year. Mm-hmm. It's gotten a little bit lesser now since my day job has picked up. But um, basically, I am just that good. Or, okay, hubris Hubris to one side. Uh, As you you can tell, uh, lack of ego is not one of my issues. (laughs) So, um, simply put, I tend to view writing as a skill set. It's simply, it is something which is a skill which can be learned, can be trained, learned by observation, learned by practice. And relative to kind of, your typical person, even to your typical freelancer, I have an unusual amount of practice, training, and kind of observation in writing skills before I ever got to Pathfinder. So, hmm. like, to start with, so, writing is something you can learn through observation. As I mentioned earlier, my family are all absolutely book obsessed. And this has stayed the same. If you believe Goodreads, I don't know if you believe Goodreads, I average about 100 books a year.
0: Wow, nice. I
1: read a lot. Yeah. And this means that I have like a lot of examples of plot structures, yeah. cool-looking scenes, little character snippets, um, particularly memorable quotes or lines, all kind of jumbled up in my brain. Mm-hmm. Lost. I think lots of freelancers are like that, but it definitely means that I kind of have a head, kind of a head start on a lot of stuff. Whenever mm-hmm. I'm given some kind of project, like, okay, what have I read which might be relevant to this? What what stuff falls out of my brain? Uh, like when I was doing, let's say, the um, the Mbeka dwarves for uh, Lost Omens, One Expanse, I was like, okay. W- Dwarves, dwarves, what can I do? You know what? I like ideas of civic citizenship, and let's do something with the Romans. Stuff like that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, that's one thing. I have actual formal training in research and in writing. So, as have noted, I am a trained historian. I have a PhD in history. And... Well, there's a lot of ways you can kind of describe what a historian, of like anyone in the humanities does. One reasonably accurate description would be somebody who reads stuff, thinks about it, and writes about it. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, back when I was first starting my degree, was like my, adv- my first advisor, trial by file, like, here's a thousand pages of history book read this by next week, and expect to talk about it. (laughs) I've had seminars like that, I will say. yeah, It it, it was an experience, trial by fire. I barely survived, but God, God, did I know history afterwards. So by the time I even got to that very first Paizo assignment, I'd already written grant applications, project reports, I'd, fin- I'd already finished by that point my 100,000-word 1, dissertation, which was mm-hmm. in the process of turning into an actual book back then, ended up getting published in 2018. I'd kind of, I basically had like a lot of actual, formal training in how to write and how to write to a deadline and how to write mm-hmm. kind of coherently and to a reasonable level of skill. And then there's just like the like my background in homebrew stuff and particularly play by post. Because how does a play by post work? Or at least the way I always right. do it. It's you go like two or three times a week, I go online and I have to write out a couple of hundred words post of like whatever in response to whatever is going on. You do that for about fifteen years, and you're going to get very good at impromptu writing.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I
1: think over the years, I'm, good God, I've probably written uh, six or seven thousand posts, which probably works out to easily a million words, mm-hmm. if not, if not two. Add to that hundred thousand words of homebrew stuff, and. Basically, it just means that kind of writing is a skill, and I happen—it's one in which I have a uh, unusual amount of practice. That's that's basically what it comes down to. I have mm-hmm. written a lot of stuff.
0: Yes, you have. So you mentioned um, your degree—a uh, PhD in diplomatic history. Yes. Um, I, you know I'm familiar with PhDs. I have a PhD myself. I understand the research part of it. I don't know what diplomatic history is, though. Uh, could you explain that a little bit for myself and the audience? Okay, so diplomatic
1: history is... Okay, so obviously, it's the history of diplomacy, which is a fancy way of saying it's the history of the international relations between states, or basically, how do mm-hmm. countries interact with one another? So... My particular specialty is in 19th century Russian foreign policy. Pretty much going from the Crimean War up until World War 1. What was the Russian Empire trying to do? What was what were its goals? How did it set out to accomplish those goals? Does it succeed? Mostly not. Why not? What what happens what doesn't happen? So Diplomatic history is pretty much kind of the study of just of the non-military interactions mm-hmm. of countries.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, like most kind of academics, and as I'm sure you know, it's like we all have like a little penumbras of specialization. So right. my my deep specialty is right. Russian foreign policy, especially in the Balkans. Right. Um, my book. My dissertation transformed into a book was How Russia Lost Bulgaria, 1878 to 1886, Empire Unguided. Which is basically a fancy kind of account of Russian Bulgarian relations during this time period. It results in, like, what was Russia trying to do? Make an ally in the Balkans. Did Russia succeed? Good God, no. Why not? Well, it's a story which involves a couple of assassination attempts, some coup attempts, some successful coups, two wars, scandal all over the place. That's kind of my that's my core focus. And then kinda of spreading out, I'm reasonably well-versed in like all aspects of uh Russian history, let's say after Catherine the Great. Mm-hmm. I know my way around 19th century Europe. I'm I more or less not looking at the history of like how does diplomacy, how do international relations actually work? Um, I know enough international relations theory, there's stuff like realism, uh, the international law approach, constructivism to at least get myself into trouble, we'll say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's basically what it comes down to.
0: So this is interesting. I have a niece who is very much into... Um, something similar. She's into international relations and she actually wanted to study uh, diplomatic history as well. Uh, Her specialization is like uh, relations between uh, Japan and China in like uh, 1830 something or another, right? So very similar kind of idea that you have there. Um, Where did you go for your degree? Because that's something I don't know. (sighs) So I bounced around a decent bit. Um, I did my undergraduate
1: at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst,
2: mm-hmm.
1: then bounced over to Tufts University for my okay. master's
0: degree. So pretty close, so, you know. Yeah. yeah,
1: I, 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 I've always said Massachusetts, and yeah. then for my actual PhD, which Tufts didn't have a PhD program at that time, right? I went to Northeastern University and oh, worked okay. under uh, Professor Harlow Robinson there. Mm-hmm. So. I've mostly stayed in and around the Massachusetts area. Right. Uh, My friends will tell you that I am a staunch New England chauvinist. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Very good. Yeah. I I went to school in New England, so I can kind of appreciate that in Connecticut. Where where in New England? uh, The United States Coast Guard Academy. So I was a Coast Guard officer for a bunch of years. So that's where my undergraduate's from. And my, um, my niece is actually in the D.C. area. And I said, why don't you go to Georgetown or... You know, American University or something down there, they don't have her specialization. So she wants to come out to the west coast of of the U.S. to go somewhere like Berkeley or something. I said, "Well, good luck getting into Berkeley. That's that's a tough nut to crack." (laughs) I'm sorry. Yeah,
1: I I have one friend who I think went did go to Berkeley for undergrad. She is Mm -hmm. very smart, like does genetic stuff. I don't I don't understand it.
0: Yeah, I'm a historian. I, I deal with like simple things. Yeah. Yeah. I went, I went to Michigan for a master's and PhD. So it's, okay. it's, it's a good school, but it's not Berkeley. <laughs> it's not. Berkeley. <laughs> All right. Um, so that's great. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. You, you know, You've kind of talked about this a little bit, but I'm going to ask you anyway because it's one of my questions. How is the research that you've done as part of your PhD, kind of learning that process, you've talked about the writing, how the research, though, helped you with your freelance writing and game design?
1: Um, okay, a couple of ways, I'd say. Um, first, I guess, is just the simple skill transfer. In other words, part of what you need to do to be kind of a historian or anyone else in the humanities is you kind of get to be really good at opening the book, reading through it quickly, and figuring out kind of what are the key ideas, key themes, summaries, and so on, which is a fairly useful thing when you are dealing with something like Pathfinder, where there are many years of lore prior kind of multiple previous mm-hmm. books and so forth right so it does kind of give me a bit of a leg up in the sense of just i can pretty quickly figure out okay what what's happened before and what do i need to let's say update if i'm dealing with like this particular material in the second edition let's say
2: but moreover more than that it's honestly just um So as
1: as, uh, tabletop RPG writers, we are often kind of called upon to create new settings, new worlds, new new countries, and so on. Uh, Even in Pathfinder, which is a pretty established setting, they're still always making up kind of new stuff. And when... the time comes, like, oh, we need to make or we need to detail in in more depth some kind of society or setting or civilization. I happen to know of a lot of, like, current examples. I can think like, Mm -hmm. oh, what kind of, like, weird society does this thing remind me of? Or what can I do which, like, has what peculiar historical influences can I bring in? Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for instance, let's kind of go back to the uh Becca Dwarves in Wangek Spats because that's one of the few times I got a chance to build a society completely from scratch.
2: Right. And I was like, okay, yeah.
1: where can I bring in some things stuff in? So it's like, you know what?
2: Rome.
1: Roman Republic. So um they've got for example elements like uh the There was an ancient, well, ancient for them, war of like some one of their kings, when mad, bad, and thoroughly wrong. It's like, hmm, can you say Tarquin Superbus? (laughs) Things like that, or elective kingships. So basically, just means that I have a lot of bits and pieces of historical example which I can use to help build. New societies, new countries,
0: new settings. Right, and and not only can you build new, but you can also make them coherent, because you understand yeah. how the system works and it's interlocked. So when you build a new system, you make sure you have those pieces yeah. fitting together yeah. properly yeah. as well. I imagine very similar to yeah, well, there, there yeah. I guess. There's very good. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So um, you mentioned your day jobs keeping you busier. Uh, what is your day job in China uh, as a you know, American-trained uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainian. Uh, what are you doing in China?
1: Tormenting students. Oh, okay, so I enjoy. Yes, yes, it, it, it's lots of fun, like playing mind games with teenagers. Okay, so uh, in actual fact, um, I am a history teacher at an international school here in Shenzhen, in Guangdong mm-hmm. province. So. Okay, so rewind a little bit. So wh- back in ye olden days, I completed my PhD. I was like, okay, all right, Michael. Now you need to get a job. And academia was not an enticing prospect at that time. I have this weird thing where like I like eating three times a day and like other <laughs> luxuries like that. So like, no, yeah, imagine okay. things not happening. Yeah. So I went thought I'd go, let's go into secondary education. Looked around a bunch of schools in America. They all, they all kept asking awkward questions like, have you ever worked with teenagers before? It's like, ah. Uh. So one thing led to another, and I kind of went to China because there is a lot of demand for teachers, English-speaking teachers here. I kind of bumped around for a couple of years teaching English, or working as a homeroom teacher. One gloriously terrible year, I was a third grade homeroom teacher. Never again. <laughs> oh, man.
0: Never not for again. me. No way. Not gonna do that. <laughs> I. You see, basically, they offered me a lot of money.
2: Yeah.
1: And it was only later that I realized they did not offer me enough money. <laughs> oh, okay. But in any case, finally, I've arrived at my current place. And kind of by hook, by crook, and by a certain dint of kind of sharp elbows, I now actually teach in my specialty. I teach modern world history, AP world history, and uh, international baccalaureate diploma program. So basically I am that super fancy history teacher that always goes on digressions and like torments teenagers with like Weird story. So, kids, today we're going to talk about guillotines. <laughs> uh, my my students, nice. are always absolutely terrified of falling asleep in my class.
0: I don't know
2: why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so, so uh, are, how's your? Uh, I, I presume you speak Mandarin there. They, I don't know what they speak. Uh, so, funnily enough, um, okay. So. Despite being
1: ostensibly bilingual, I'm actually kind of terrible at languages. But <laughs> okay.
0: the, yeah, the, but the school actually is it's an English-speaking school. And right, I figured that, our... but I was just wondering: to live there, you probably had to pick up a little bit. I mean, I can say yes, no, hello,
1: and I can I can curse Mandarin. That's useful. Yeah, But But uh, I think most of our student body is actually like we got some change, we got. Massive number of Koreans, Americans, Russians—we got everybody. So, right, right, right. plus these days, I live in Sheko, which is like expat
0: central around here. Okay, right, yeah. And and I uh, in China also okay. don't they teach English like growing up through grade school for a lot of them as well? Um, yeah. So actually, my very first jobs was in um, Chinese government schools where I was
1: teaching English to like just kind of. Regular Chinese students for a while. I started yeah. off in um, Zhenzhou in the central provinces, and only more recently came down to the coast. So, nice. yeah, they they teach, There's a lot of people out here who can speak at least a little bit of English.
0: Right. Yeah, I taught. I taught in Denmark for a while, and I loved it there because everybody in Denmark pretty much knows how to speak English and enjoy speaking it with you for practice. So it's like, <laughs> oh, you, you said hello, I'm gonna speak to you in English. If you say hi, I'm gonna speak to you in Danish. <laughs> like, oh, once I learned that trick, oh, it's all easy. All easy. <laughs> Excellent, <laughs> okay. yep. So, sounds, um, sounds about right. How's the gaming environment there, right? You've been there for a number of years. Do you do you game locally with anybody? Um, not particularly, so, okay.
1: we, strange though it may seem, I, I do try and keep a little bit of a separation between Michael the game writer and Michael the teacher, so it's, like, mm. not exactly a deep, dark secret, but,
0: it's like, eh, little separate spheres. I did, until yeah. I got tenure, I did that, too. <laughs> Once I got tenure, I started telling people, "Yeah, I'm I'm running all these games, doing game design." They were all excited about it. I'm thinking, why? Why, why was I worried about that? You know. So. Well, oh, so yeah. I will say the
1: one thing I do do is I tend as I have um, the cover of one of my Pathfinder modules like up on like the on the poster board behind my desk, and nice. I was like, how long does it take students to notice this thing?" <laughs> um last year i had some had one teenager ask me in tones of absolute shock around may dr raccoon you do gaming stuff oh, she said, like, o- open your
0: eyes little timmy open your eyes yeah, yeah um, I, I used to be a competitive video gamer too, and when I tell my students that, they're like, What? <laughs> You're too old. Yeah, back in the day we did play still, you know? Yep.
1: So oh. that that's <laughs> and I, I I I I sometimes tell my students like I have characters older than
0: you. <laughs> yes. Nice. Uh, yeah. so, so one, you know, I, I had interviewed uh, Andrew Mullen a couple couple months ago, and uh, so you all are working on this new thing uh, called Luminant Age. Um, so he's, he's told us a little bit about it. Can you tell me what the genesis was for this luminant Age campaign?
1: Okay, so I mean, the, the basic genesis was, let's say... <laughs> I was very bored. So, somewhat more seriously, uh, I've been running these play-by-posts for years. I've been running kind of campaigns and so on. And as uh, you may have picked up, when I do things, I tend to kind of go heavily into them. So I kind of so I see someone perhaps kind of long and saying like, Michael, you should like try and like publish this or like you should try and like actually like turn this into a setting, and I was like, hmm, maybe, except the way I was doing all of those involved a lot of, um, how shall we phrase this delicately, inspiration from sources to which I did not own copyright, which is fine when you're doing your own home game. I was like, right, yeah, if, I'm right, pub- right, like, right. if I going to publish this thing, the only question is whether I get sued by Game Workshop or Wizard of the Coast first. Okay, so let's make my own thing from scratch, from anew. And I was like, okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And thus, the Luminant Age was born. Basically, God. Michael was born and like, I can do things. I can make things.
0: So there you go. So how would you characterize Luminant Age for folks... Um, looking at you know all the various Pathfinder second edition campaigns that might be available, what flavor is this and who is it for?
2: Mm-hmm. Yes,
0: yeah, so I'm going to describe it in, let's
1: say, three different ways right now. Because I think that that will be a useful kind of sense. So first, long ago and far away in the world of Everton, there was this grand civilization, the great people, and they built an age of wonders and of marvels. They built towers to reach to the sky. They built palaces in the night's The night. They built cities so vast that an eagle could fly for a day to night and not reach the borders. They were powerful and they were proud and not perhaps overwhelming in their kindness. They built mines that knew all the wonders of the world, and they built slaves and servitors, pulling them from their cauldrons to live. Until one fine day, without warning, with no omen, no augury, the sun went dark. The stars went out, and all was cold, and all was darkness. And this great civilization fell, because all their wonders and marvels could not keep them when there was no sun. Some little while passed, and in the sky appeared three new heavenly bodies, what the few survivors would call the moons. And then from the ruins, from a few bunkers, from from hidden places deep beneath, some tiny sliver of humanity emerged and began to rebuild. Now turn the page. 1,400 years have passed, and empires have risen and fallen. We have city-states. We have the hustle and the bustle of civilization. Everything is happening. And nowhere is it happening more than in the city of oracor There, you have in- inventions crawling out of workshops. You have students discussing these latest philosophies, newest ideas. Everything seems possible. Everything seems like we can do this. There is a new world in the offing, a new age in the offing, a Luminant Age, and it's being born here in Oracle. That's one kind of, shall we say, framing. A second framing. So the Luminant Age is a weird fantasy swashbuckler set in this sort of post-apocalyptic kind of setting where... Once there was this, we shall say, kind of high science fiction, high cyberpunk society, which went dramatically and quite epically kaput. We now advance to kind of the afterwards. And in the ruins of of this once great technological civilization, you have kind of new societies, new civilizations have emerged. And frankly, have kind of just moved on. They've got new things to worry about. Mm. Uh, the main setting of the... The main setting thing is Oracle, which is this sort of... This Merchant Republic set on a set... Bah, set on a set. And I'm supposed to be a writer. Yeah. A Merchant <laughs> Republic positioned on a group of dirks in the middle of an ocean.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: Which is... Shows a kind of... New york meets venice it's It's the place where kind of you got the universities you got like the new ideas, and it's basically where this sort of renaissance slash almost industrial revolution that we call the luminant age is happening. Our protagonists are our players are this motley crew of Rogues, rascals, and ne'er do wells, who are trying to kind of make a living in this hust- hustling and bustling little city, in hopes that kind of by hook, by crook, they go from being nobodies to being somebodies. Kind of, while like any campaign setting, you can basically do like anything you like with it, in kind of the the archetypal campaign frame, the idea is very much that our heroes, our protagonists will, as they kind of gain in power and status, they will be able to actually change how Oracle, in fact, or how the Luminant Age takes shape. That it won't be easy, it won't be quick, but our heroes can kind of become, Iverin's kind of George Washington or Martin Luther. If they're Thomas More or they're Niccolò Machiavelli. Kind of, they have the chance to step forward and make make a stamp on history, as it were. That's the second framework. So, third framework. Lumen Age is, as noted, a weird fantasy swashbuckler. So what do we actually mean by that? So by weird fantasy, this means that we are trying to create a setting which is different from kind of the classic Elves and Dragons fantasy, which everyone is very well familiar with. Now, I have nothing against Elves and Dragons fantasy. <laughs> I've spent more years in it than I care to numbers. But by the same token, uh, we're not going to be doing it better than the big guys. Mm -hmm. So instead, we are trying to kind of forge a setting which has different assumptions, different archetypes, different kind of core ideas. So let's say in, in kind of Luminant Age, we don't have... Elves or dwarves or kind of the classic fantasy assembly. Instead, you've got the four humanities. You've got the clay, who are human-ish, we shall say, in standard of the appeal. The horn, who are four-horned gargoyle types. The silk, who are kind of cat, moth, whiskery types. And the blood people, who are, shall we say, of generally ooze-like definition. Um, we have, rather than kind of the standard uh, pantheistic approach of kind of, again, the big guys, we have of, uh, varying kind of competing religions, all claiming to their own understanding of an infinite truth. We have technologies based on like what the locals call iker, which is a lovely hallucinogenic acid which also blows up. So essentially it's a setting where you could be, let's say, a four-horned gargoyle person toting around an acid-spewing super soaker along with your best friends Cthulhu nun and the Nano Wizard. So we're trying to kind of make this just a new dictionary, shall we say. A mm-hmm. fantasy. And Swashbuckler. What, what do you mean by Swashbuckler? Um we're kind of we're inspired a lot by things like Three Musketeers or uh Banner Sorry Ortsy's kind of the Scarlet Pimpernel. So kind of mm-hmm. characters who are a bit larger than life. Stylish, mm-hmm. dramatic. Okay.
2: Got
1: it. Um, an emphasis on not kind of on save the world approaches, but more Interpersonal relationships, more kind of political intrigue, uh, more kind of sneakery, shall we say. And just an outlook of something which might call kind of like humanistic cynicism. That the sort of idea that yes, people have all their flaws and foibles, but we still love them anyway. So,
2: you know,
0: three ways to sort of think about what is Luminant Age. Nice. Yeah, I'd um I like I like your description of of what it is. You know, when Andrew talked about it, I was very excited. I I really enjoy the post apocalyptic kind of settings and things and I kind I I really I think it's neat the story that you've built of this earlier empire and its fall and kind of what's rising from the ashes. So so that, mm-hmm. I I find that very exciting. Now, you've released a couple of um uh sections of this, right? Some different pieces of it. when when might we expect like the whole thing start coming out and being pieced together. What's what's that do you have a schedule or timeline for that or is it uh uh you're laughing so <laughs> um, okay so all right. So at this time um we have
1: kickstarted, finished and released one product called Fauna of the Luminant Age, which is like a theory mm-hmm. expert. Um that thing's, out and done, and you can buy it on our um, itch.io store. We are currently attempting to finish our second release, which is called Armaments of the Luminant Age, which mm. is this uh, equipment book. That thing is written and illustrated, and we have versions for both Pathfinder 2nd edition and D 5th edition. And it is currently stuck in post production, so we're working on it. But when it'll actually be finished? Excellent question. I'll let you know when I have an answer. Hopefully soon. All right.
0: Okay. I was just wondering, Uh, you know, what what things Um, are going. So
1: past that, so our vague hope it was to do one more kind of intermediate design. Um, Probably something like uh, Paragon's Lumen Age focused on characters, specifically on people.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Probably some NPCs, probably some archetypes, like uh, we have the Nanite archetype, we've got like a Commedia dell'Arte style archetype, we have stuff like that. So that's good, but that can't happen until Armaments finishes up. Right. And then eventually, long-term, the goal is to do a the big book Kickstarter, which would be a Kickstarter for the entire book, which at this point is shaping up to probably be between three and 400 pages. Uh, we've got 100, no, 110,000 words written already. I'll, I'll put it this way. I'd like to have the big Kickstarter happening sometime around 3rd or 4th quarter of 2023 with a release in the summer of 2024. That's the hope. Will it actually happen? At this point, I'm a little cautious about making promises. Um, Basically, the issue is, uh, simply put, this is something which they're... (laughs) <laughs> I, I and I can imagine, like, Ron Lundin right now is just watching this and laughing. But basically, it's actually kind of hard to put out a full product. <laughs> yeah. In the sense that not only is there just an awful lot of writing, but there is a lot of kind of production stuff which happens right. in the background. Uh, things like editing has to be figured out, like layout, I think. Getting all like the arcs put together, uh, so the one kind of consistent sort of thing I've noticed so far is that every time I set a kind of timeline, everything takes twice as long as I expect. Oh, so, okay, that's so, good to know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so hopefully sooner rather than later. I definitely feel yeah. like we are past the halfway mark. Um, yeah. we are. Kind of the book, the writing is much more done than not done. Mm-hmm. We're building up our reservoir of art, uh, but the other the other kind of complicating factor is that at the end of the day, I mean, not to be, to, to be kind of too blunt about, it, but uh, we all have day jobs or other kind mm-hmm. of responsibilities, so. When kind of the decision comes, okay, do I work on making on grading for my students or I'm working on Luminant Age? I know what I want to do, yes. I also know what I need to do to not get fired. So it's like, yeah, eh, I love you, Luminant Age, but daddy's
0: got rent. So that's a complicated factor. No, I, I, I understand that. Uh, I have a project I should be writing on right now, as a matter of fact. Uh And I have work I should be doing right now in preparation for classes, and uh, starting in next week. So I was like, uh, "Been there, okay. but I'll I'm figure not. it out." Yes, yes. All right. Well, you have written an awful lot. What advice do you have for people interested in freelance writing and game design who have not honed their skills already and earned an advanced degree that? entails a lot of research and writing. Mm. Okay,
1: so I think a couple of things. So from a writing perspective, I'd say the, the single biggest lesson is learn kind of how to write good enough and then be done with it. Um, mm. Something I see I like a that. lot in both the freelance sphere and that matter in academia is kind of just extreme perfectionism. Let's say people who, for whom that this must be kind of like just the the muses sing down, kind of it Apollo pours inspiration into their ear. Right? And that's great when you can get the inspiration, but sometimes the gift of the muses is, is like a little box which is like like cobwebs inside and like a thinking of you note card. So it's very important, I think, as a writer to learn to kind of just produce good enough writing on demand. Mm-hmm. Not kind of when inspiration strikes, not when... Kind of like the stars align, but basically to be able to just sit down and tap 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 and get something. Um, mm-hmm. You you may be familiar with uh, the same. In graduate school, there was a saying yes. which went like this:
0: Yes, a I good know dissertation
1: is. <laughs> is a finished dissertation.
0: Yes, exactly. a great
1: dissertation is a published dissertation. A perfect dissertation is neither. And. Same idea here. Learn. Kind of, for writers, it's learn to do good enough and then call it done and move on.
2: Mm-hmm. I'll also
1: note that I've had a writing where I was like sublimely inspired and the writing it's like, daddy's got art commissions to pay for. And with very few exceptions, people can't tell the difference, sadly. Right. That's one thing. As for freelance, I would basically say that freelancing is ultimately a job. It's a kind of job. It's a fun job. It's an enjoyable one. It's one we tend to like. But at the end of the day, it is a professional arrangement between you making a product and kind of the developer kind of commissioning you as, like, a temporary employee. And you like you need to kind of think about a little in that sense, that ultimately you're trying to provide a product with, let's say, a minimum of fuss and bother. So just basic things like communication, professionalism, all those kind of things, they do matter. Like, that your writing can be the most amazing thing ever, but it also just matters kind of how you come across uh professional standards, things like that. Mm, kind of it's a li- little bit uh grimly capitalistic, but well, that's life.
0: Yeah, I I would agree a lot of that. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, Ryan and I talk about this quite a bit. I ask for advice. I'm I'm aspiring to reach your level, you know. So I'm at the uh you know, I might have 50,000 words and I have like a dozen credits. So, and you know, I got a ways to go. I got a ways to go there. Um, but that's one of the things that um, he, he has mentioned to me, you know, having it good enough on time, doing what your developer asks you to do, you know, yep. so that they don't have to go and completely rewrite everything you turn in.
2: Mm-hmm. So,
0: yeah. awesome. Excellent. Um, so I, I appreciate and And honestly, I think you're the first person who has said I I've asked about a hundred people the same thing, right? What advice do you have? I think you're the first person that has said, don't write to perfection, write to good enough. <laughs> so <laughs> well, that that is the Michael philosophy, yes. Yeah, no, I I think it's you know, I'm I'm working on something now, and I find myself starting off with this is go- going to be perfect, and it always morphs into you know, this is pretty good. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it's on time, hits all the paces, it's on the word count. That's yep. good enough
2: for me. <laughs> you know, yeah. so. I think the thing I think so. is that
1: we kind of, as writers or if I'm, I think our story there's always this 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 imagined product, this imagined thing in our minds, yes. which will always be perfect because you know, it's the imagined thing. But our skills are not perfect. Once we kind of bring that from the around the mind to like actual concrete
0: existence, compromises have to be made. So very good. So what's next for Michael? You know, I know you're working on Illuminate Age, but are there any other cool things that you're working on now that you can talk about? Cool things that I'm working on, yes. That I can talk about, no.
1: Okay. Uh, well um let's see so i mean I, I continue to work for pi so um not perhaps to the heights of when i was working on dark archive but Sorry. i've got some assignments of you know, i'm working on these days some which have are in the pipeline i don't really expect that to cha- that to change and I am still working on kind of Luminant Age. And that's basically enough to keep me pretty busy. Uh, once I finish Luminant Age, who knows? The world will be my oyster. <laughs> but that won't be for a while yet. Yeah.
0: Do you travel to any conventions? I, I would love to meet you in person, but I don't think I'll make it to China. So Are, um, are there any conventions you... So I have... <laughs>
2: um...
1: So, here in China, we, for obvious reasons, have not been doing much traveling for the last few years. Yes, yes. yeah. So, I haven't gone to any conventions, largely because most of the ones which do happen happen in the States during times when school is still in session around here. And Mm. I had to put it delicately. I love you guys, but it is a. Like twenty-six hour flight from from Shenzhen to right. like Boston, and I don't love you that much. <laughs> so, possibly during the summer, I may someday look into things uh, when I can actually travel back for the summer. Right. So, right. someday, hopefully. And I mean, right. I don't
0: expect to be teaching in China forever. So, who knows? We'll see. We will see. So, uh so Michael, thanks so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate you uh, weathering the camera as well. I know you've uh, have have an eye injury that's yeah. bothering you, and you've done very quite well with it, I will say, and uh, I, but I want to point it out for people that, yeah. that you're, it's a so, little sleepy because it's bothering you. It's not because that's how you are. No. I'm normally much more photogenic, but
1: uh, <laughs> basically well, I good. Am, you look good. I am the unique person. Everyone here in China is getting COVID right now. But me, no. I'm a rebel. I'm an iconoclast. I have managed to catch the one non-COVID virus going around the damn country right now. Which means that, yeah, I can... Like, hi. That's all I can see. <laughs> yeah. I will... Yeah. This is this is why,
0: like... So,
1: yeah.
0: Well, thank <sighs> you so much. I appreciate you putting up... And I think the video is fine. I don't think anyone will know is. I just want to say it just in case. <laughs> right. Well, have a, yeah. have a great uh, rest of your uh, day here because it's 11 o'clock in the, in the morning or now noon for you and it's evening for yep. me. Have a great new year as
2: well. Yes, happy new year to you and to all of your li- many listeners and viewers.